Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus, for his life, for his ministry, for his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And because Jesus is alive, he can change us. He can forgive us. He can transform us. And Heavenly Father, we pray that you would impart to us the power that we need in order to fulfill the command that you've given to us to love each other, even as you have loved us. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray that in that process of change and transformation, that, Lord, you would make us men and women who value holiness, who value humility, and, Lord, who are willing to abandon hypocrisy. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 13, beginning in verse 31, it says, So when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I'm going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples. If you have Love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. Jesus must leave. The disciples must love. One will experience a test of loyalty. Jesus is quite literally right on the precipice of death. And there are four great themes that loom large from here till the end of chapter 14, verse 31. In the next few weeks, we will see as Jesus speaks his final words to the disciples, what we're seeing this morning. There is another commandment. There will come another coming. There will be another commission. There will follow another comforter. And so in verse 31, Jesus says concerning his departure, so when he had gone out, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. When it begins with that expression, so when he had gone out, remember this is a reference to the departure of Judas. Judas has left. 
the betrayer is gone. And you can sense almost this gigantic sigh of relief. The tone changes. The mood and the momentum shifts. It's as if a great burden has been lifted from the shoulders of Jesus. Both verbs are in the past tense. So when he had gone out, now the Son of Man has been glorified. That's what it literally says in the text. Here's the idea. The glorification is so near. It's so sure. It's so certain. The arrest, the trial... The crucifixion of Jesus is so certain the text is speaking as if it has already taken place. In a sense, it was accomplished in purpose, but soon it will be accomplished in reality. In one sense, Jesus has exposed and expelled Judas. And in another sense, Judas is left voluntarily, intent on his own evil act of betrayal. It becomes a type and a picture of the unbeliever, of the unrepentant. It's the idea that as a person makes their way apart from God, as they make their way apart from Jesus, they set on a journey. And remember, we've already talked about that. When you close your heart to Jesus, you open your heart to Satan and Judas is now on a journey to hell. By the way, God doesn't make people go to hell. They make themselves go to hell. In a very real sense, God endorses the decision that people make for or against Christ. And the departure of Judas marks a turning point. There's this purging, this cleansing, if you will, for a season. And when Judas walks out the door, so does Satan, just for a moment. Just for a moment. The departure of Judas Judas brings about his final lap, but it also brings Jesus to his own departure, his own passion, his own last lap. And by the way, Jesus never speaks of his death as as a, a tragedy or a crime or a punishment or a disgrace or a humiliation. Jesus speaks of his death as the one event that will most glorify himself and glorify God the Father. When we see the cross through the lens of broken humanity, through fallen flesh, we sometimes see this tragic, sickening, ugly thing. I can't help but remembering when I first saw the the, the movie by Mel Gibson, The Passion. How so many people were rocked when they saw that. You see this horrible, terrible crucifixion. It, it, was a, it was a death so horrific that if you were a Roman citizen, even the worst Roman citizen would never, ever have to be put to death under those circumstances. But viewed through the lens of faith, Viewed with a heart of a believer, we see forgiveness. We see hope. 
we see glory. Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of the Lord Jesus by whom the world was crucified to me and I to the world. The word glory is a religious word that we don't use in our culture and our society very much. The word glory in the Greek culture was a word that was used to describe or express values of vital importance. The word glory meant the weight or the substance or the focus of attention was on the opinion of someone. In this case, on the opinion of others. But here, the way Jesus uses it, it means the opinion that God the Father has concerning God the Son. In the context of the Hebrew people, glory spoke of God's revelation. If we were to take the word glory and we were try to make it understandable to us, glory is the mechanism whereby God reveals himself to a watching world. Many of you have used the expression, I see God in a sunset. Well, maybe you do, because certainly we live on a planet and in a universe that speaks of the glory and the majesty of a creator God. I see God in the birth of a baby. Maybe you do, because the miracle of life is certainly a miracle. But the Bible says something incredible. That even though creation reveals His glory, and even though the conscience reveals His glory, the thing that reveals the most incredible revelation of God that's spoken of in the Bible is his, the incarnation of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus because it speaks not only the, of the holiness of God, but of the love of God. It's not just simply God. It's the revelation of God. It's God who appears as light, as fire, as blazing splendor, flaming holiness. But it's not simply raw power or blazing fire. There is a sense in which His holy character is revealed in conjunction with His loving character. When Moses begged God to show him his glory, the Bible says, The Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, Yahweh, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. The idea is see God in the fullness of the expression of the majesty of his identity. But Jesus, the Son of Man, reveals God. And that revelation is the cross. Jesus is on a mission. And the mission is to secure an eternal righteousness for human beings, to secure forgiveness, to secure reconciliation with the Father, to secure eternal life for sinful human beings. And he's now ready to do it. If we were to put it in military terms, Jesus is ready to deploy. He's ready to engage. He's ready to confront the enemy. Adam and Eve forfeited their glory through rebellion and disobedience to God. The second man, Christ, takes on human flesh to regain what was lost by man's fall and to secure an eternal inheritance for those who would believe in him and trust in him. And so John uses the title, Son 
of man. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. In John's Gospel, that expression is used some 12 times. The first time in John chapter 1. The last time, right here. Do you remember it was when he was talking with Nathaniel? I wonder when Jesus said this expression, Now the Son of Man is glorified. I wonder if Nathaniel looked up. When you hear certain things, it reminds you of certain things, doesn't it? It brings to mind a memory. And I suspect that that's exactly what was happening here. In a very real sense, Jesus is about to return to glory. The road is dark. The cross is the instrument that will send Christ home. But you need to understand something. The cross is not simply a Bible bus stop on Jesus' road back to heaven. It's something far more. The cross is the instrument which will vanquish sin and Satan. Jesus must go to the cross, not simply so he can go to heaven, but so he can go to you. So he can make the journey inside of you to go into your heart, to enter into friendship and relationship with you. Clearly, the Son was glorified and God is glorified in His sinless life and His perfect obedience to the Father. But the statement of glory points to a timeless goal. In Jesus, we not only have an understanding of God's action and God's heart and God's character, but we have an understanding now of real love and real friendship in real relationship. In Jesus, we see God's glory. But yet for the unbeliever, and yet for the religious leaders, they see a man. They see a rabbi. They see the son of a Galilean peasant. They see a person who is clearly an extraordinary human being, but they don't see God unveiled. That's the difference between seeing with believing eyes and seeing with unbelieving eyes. And look what it says in verse 33. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I'm going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, the coming crisis isn't simply going to affect Jesus. It's going to affect everyone in his life. And Jesus knew about the fear, and he knew about the despair, and he knew about the agony of the loss. Jesus calls his disciples little children. And by the way, that that, that diminutive little children, it carries with it the idea of relationship and deep affection. But it also carries with it the idea of immaturity. Notice also Jesus doesn't use the term little children until after Judas is gone. Jesus uses the term little children only after Judas leaves and only here. And I think that that's important. 
Because you typically don't use that term with adults unless you want to insult them. Particularly if you've ever had anyone say to you, my child, you go, I'm an adult, why are you calling me child? Hey, look, I want to be treated like an adult. But I suspect that there's a reason why Jesus is using this expression and he's using it here. It's because of the sinking feeling that begins to flood their hearts and that sinking feeling is the feeling of abandonment. Now, most of you are too old to remember the first time your mom and your dad ever left you alone. That sense of panic that floods your heart when you go, I see it every time I go into the children's ministry and I watch you drop off your children. Especially for the new person who comes and visits our church. And I see them with a screaming baby as he or she is being handed to the children's ministry worker. You know, some years ago I was back there and I said something unfortunate. I really regret it. I said, you know how many children have died in our children's ministry? Yeah, I shouldn't have said it. As soon as it came out of my mouth, it was I knew it was wrong. You know, because the person just looks kind of frightened and startled at you. For Lisa Hester, this look of horror came over her face. And I said, the record so far is zero. Every child that's been dropped off has been picked up without exception. And I said, you know how many children have cried themselves to death in the children's ministry? But that would be zero. Right now, it looks really bad. And right now, it looks really dramatic. And for the child being dropped off, it looks really bad and really dramatic. (laughs) When will the preacher be quiet? We need this to be over with. Jesus has already told the religious leaders that they would seek him and that they wouldn't find him in chapter 7, verse 34. But now Jesus tells his own disciples about the Via Dolorosa, the path that he must walk alone. And I want to draw attention to the fact that Jesus uses the term, and as I said to the Jews, what an odd thing to say. To my knowledge, This is the only time that Jesus uses that expression. Clearly, he uses it when he's speaking to the Samaritan woman in in John chapter 4, verse 22. Later on, he'll use the expression to Caiaphas and to Pilate. But this is the only place in John's gospel where he uses the expression, the Jews, in speaking to his faithful disciples. It would be like if you had a bunch of Italian people together and you go, as I said concerning the Italian people. What do you, you don't say that to a bunch of Italian people. It just doesn't seem to fit. But in a very real sense, it fits perfectly. Because Jesus is reminding them at that very moment that he is going his way. And they are going their way. Jesus will go to Calvary. Jesus will go to the grave. They will remain. They will remain pilgrims and strangers in a strange land. And Jesus is preparing them for the shock and the arrest and the trial and the nails and the confusion and the devastation that's going to well up inside of them. In that light, when you look at verse 34, look what it says. 
a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. In John's Gospel, in the first 12 chapters, do you know how many times the word love appears? Twelve. Twelve times. In John chapter 13 through chapter 21, it will now appear 44 times. It's the key word and the key concept as Jesus is saying goodbye. This is important because when he says a new commandment I give to you, in what way is this new? By the way, the word new doesn't mean new in time, but rather new in experience. We have a word in our culture and in our language, we call it the word fresh. Do you know what the opposite of the word fresh is? Stale, worn, used. So in this particular instance, this is the word new, meaning newness in experience. It's sort of like if you've ever bought a used car. It may have been worn out for somebody else, but it's your new ride. It's new for you. It's not a new car, but it's, it's a fresh experience for you. And that's exactly what is being used here. Clearly, the law commanded and even demanded in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And when the Jewish people received that commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You know what they began to debate? Not the meaning of love, but the meaning of neighbor. Who is my neighbor? Love your neighbor. Who's my neighbor? Like, are we talking right next door? Are we talking across the street? Are we talking about in the neighborhood or in the community? Jesus commands that you shall love each other, even as I have loved you. He sets a new and higher standard. He insists on a new measure. The love believers have for one another are enforced with new motives and new obligations and illustrated with a new example. Warren Wiersbe writes, Love would take on a new meaning and power because of the death of Christ on the cross with the coming of the Holy Spirit. Love will have a new power in their lives. And now we begin to understand something. That the new power and the new measure are only going to take place if the Savior fulfills His mission. In John chapter 15, verse 13, Jesus said, Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. But Jesus, not content simply to lay down his life for his friends, he'll also lay down his life for his enemies. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. In verse 8, it 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, it says, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, 
love, the love of God is made known or manifested toward us that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Two generations after Jesus speaks these words, the Apostle John, meditating on them, begins to explain them. That whatever it means, whatever His life means, and whatever His death means, and whatever His resurrection accomplishes, it creates a mechanism whereby He can come into your life and into your heart and into your circumstances, not just in a physical, historical, tangible example, but in a very real way, the power and the presence of Jesus can come into your heart so that you can live differently. And that became the testimony in the early church. In verse 35, Jesus says, By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I need to remind you of the context. What is the context? Humility, holiness, the removal of hypocrisy, and the announcement of death. I'm dying. I'm going to die. And I need you to love each other. And I need you to love each other in a very specific way. The death of Jesus requires a new commandment. And the new commandment is the hallmark, that which authenticates or validates the identity of the disciple and the Lord Jesus Christ. When I was a young man growing up, I went through a crisis of my own faith. I received Jesus when I was 16 years old. A couple of weeks later, I turned 17 and was elected student body president of my high school. I shared Christ with anyone and everyone who was willing to listen, graduated from school, went to college, faced all of the nonsense that colleges continue to face as as it creates an environment of unbelief and rejection. And someone turned me on to Dr. Francis Schaeffer. I began to read his works. He wrote a highly influential little book called The Mark of a Christian, and it basically saved my life. He wrote in it, he said that the thing that sets the believer apart from the unbeliever isn't bumper stickers or fish symbols. It isn't doves or crosses. These are only symbols of our faith. The true mark of the Christian is love. Arthur Pink said, quote, love is the badge of Christian discipleship. It's not knowledge. It's not orthodoxy. Nor fleshly activities. Supremely love, which identifies the follower of Jesus. As the disciples of the Pharisees were known by their phylacteries. As disciples of John the Baptist were known by their baptism. And every particular school had its own particular shibboleth, which is a Hebrew expression, which means way of doing a peculiar distinctive, if you will. So the mark of a true Christian is love, and that genuine, active love, not simply in words, but also in deeds. So how do we give evidence of that love? Minimum, it must mean. This is the minimum. This is not the maximum. Minimum, it must mean a willingness to do what Jesus did. And so Jesus, 
on his way to death in order to provide an entrance into their heart, he serves them. He humbles himself. He washes their feet. How is it possible to misinterpret and and misapply this verse? If love for one another is the singular glorious characteristic, if loving each other is the deity's designer label, and some of you girls who shop at uh, Nordstrom's, you know that you have like the designer label, and then you have the cheap knockoff. The cheap knockoff looks like the designer. It looks even like the same material. It might even be the same print. It, it looks so much like the same thing. Then how is it different? How, how is Christian discipleship and the declaration of what it means to be a Christian, how do we tell the cheap knockoff from the real thing? Do we measure discipleship by going to church, by repeating a creed, by having religious speech, by being involved in religious activity? Jesus doesn't say any of those things. By the way, I want you to go to church, and I'm glad that you're here. I want you to read your Bible, and I'm glad that you do. But there seems to be something else. Why didn't Jesus say, men will know you're my disciples because you believe in miracles? Because you have the ability to memorize and repeat scripture by your gift, by your talent, by your intellectual skill, by your commitment to biblical orthodoxy, by your theological training. Jesus says none of those things. The apostle John would later write, if a man says, I love God. And hates his brother. He's a liar. For he that loves not his brother who he has seen. How can he love God whom he has not seen? That's First John chapter 4 verse 20. If a person is angry all the time. Bitter all the time. Upset all the time. Filled with lust all the time. Greedy all the time filled with malice and darkness all the time. How can that person characterize themselves as a person who loves God and who loves Jesus? It's foolish to talk about regeneration and justification and sanctification, election, predestination, and refuse to demonstrate the simple, practical command. The word, by the way, Jesus uses in verse 35 is agape. Of the Greeks, four words for love, eros, philos, storge, and this one, agape. This is the one that's the capstone. Essentially, it means to seek the highest good of another. And so in this particular instance, the idea and the declaration means this is a willingness to do what's right towards the person who is loved without violating the revelation of God and without violating the character of God. This type of love refuses to respond wickedly. This type of love refuses to respond in a way that is false. It refuses to reject. It refuses to demand conditions. It refuses to nitpick the lint off of someone's soul. 
When Jesus says, as I have loved you, he sets himself as the standard by which they're to forever measure their love for one another. He's basically telling them, I left the splendor and the comfort of heaven because I love you. I called you to be mine. I left the circumstances, the riches and glory in order to be with you. I called you to be mine, knowing full well your faults. I taught you even when you were stubborn and closed-minded. I corrected you when you stepped out of line. I washed your feet on the way to death. And I did all of this because it was for your good. My interest isn't in myself, but it's in you. And look what it says in verse 36. Simon Peter says to him, Lord, where are you going? (laughs) Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. I think this is interesting. You gotta love Peter. He's so much like you and me. The first to talk, the last to shut up. He wants so much to know and to love and to please and to follow the Lord. It's as if when he says, Lord, where are you going? That that what has just previously been said has completely went right over his head. Again, it's not even wrong to ask where Jesus is going. Where are you going, Jesus? The question has been asked and answered before in the gospel. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be tried. I'm going to be convicted. I'm going to be killed. A Roman cross awaits me. Where are you going, Jesus? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you can't come. Jesus reminds Peter that He will one day follow Jesus in the same direction. Where I'm going, you can't follow me now. But you will follow me afterward. And by the way, according to church tradition, that's exactly what will happen. Peter will find himself in Rome. Peter will find himself in a position of leadership. Peter will find himself in a position of authority and leadership and direction. And as the persecution breaks out in Rome and as people are being killed, the disciples of Jesus beg Peter to leave Rome. So he gets on his donkey and he heads out the Appian Way. And according to church tradition, he has a vision of Jesus going into the city and startled. Peter says, where are you going, Jesus? And he goes to Rome to die. Peter pauses and he turns around and he goes back and he faces the inevitable and they're going to kill him and they're going to crucify him. And he says, I am not worthy to die in the same way that my Lord died. Will you please crucify me upside down? I don't think that that's a really good suggestion. But Peter, hey, he does what he does. Peter's 
cross is coming, but it's for another time. The journey of Jesus to the cross isn't simply intended to change the direction of human history. It's intended to change the human heart on his way to heaven. And that's exactly what will happen. In verse 37, Peter says to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Peter announces what we all want to announce. I'll be a hero. We could be heroes just for one night. He wants desperately to be a hero but he will become a casualty. Has that ever happened to you? Lord, I want so much to honor you. I want so much to obey you. Lord, I want to honor you and obey you. I want to love you. I want to serve you. I want to go in the direction that you want me to go. And you end up on a path of disappointment. Look at verse 38. Jesus answered him, Will you? Lay down your life for my sake. Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you've denied me three times. For those of you who have been with me in the Gospel of John, as we've come across the word most assuredly, verily, verily, truly, truly, remember what it means. What I'm about to say to you is absolutely true. The moment that Peter hears the words coming out of Jesus' mouth, this is the truth. The rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. At that particular moment, he should have figured out a way to get his mouth sewn shut. But he won't, will he? You won't, will you? Peter thought he had calculated the risk and he thought he had counted the cost and he thought he knew the perils. He thought he knew what was at stake. So how are we to interpret the prophecy of Jesus? The rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. By the way, the word for deny comes from a very simple Greek word. Arnomei. It's often used interchangeably with another Greek verb, aparnemei. The word carries with it the idea of disowning someone, of abandoning someone, of leaving them high and dry. This isn't some misstatement. This is a, this is a disowning. This is a rejection. This is a profound rejection. Jesus knows that Peter will disown him. Jesus knows that Peter will play the coward. Jesus knows that he will forsake him. Jesus knows that he will disown him. And even with that knowledge, he doesn't denounce him. He doesn't cast him out. He doesn't curse and he doesn't cry. Peter is so anxious to uncover another sinner earlier in the passage. Remember in verse 24, who is it that's going to betray you, Lord? It's not me. It's not me. He's 
reluctant to deal with his own sin and his own betrayal. That should be a lesson for all of us. Are you as quick to expose other people's sins as you are to expose and confess your own? That's the very definition of hypocrisy. It's a willingness to look into your own heart, in your own circumstances. Jesus told Peter, along with the other disciples, I have to go. It's going to be a dark time. And if ever I needed you to love each other, I need it now. Your master is going to be taken from you. The spokesperson is going to fail you. In fact, all of them are going to fail the Lord. By the way, what will bring them back together? Not simply the resurrection of Jesus, although that is a powerful thing to bring them back together. The resurrection of Jesus will bring them back together but it won't keep them together. They're going to need to love each other in a powerful way. And they're going to need to love each other in a sacrificial way. They're going to need to love each other. And that becomes really the key to this whole passage. If you're tender and compassionate towards the weak, You see, how you treat people who live an inconsistent and careless life speaks really to your character and to your spiritual maturity. Authentic love is unconditional in its expression. And again, unconditional love has become sort of a catchphrase in our Christian culture. Remember, the love that Jesus is describing and demanding is a willingness to do what's in the best interest of the person based on God's character and the person that you love. There are no ifs attached to authentic love. I'll love this person if they do this or if they do that. Authentic love doesn't threaten. Authentic love doesn't manipulate. Authentic love communicates the consequences, but in the end, embraces them. Authentic love makes only those demands that love demands. Some people believe that love makes no demands whatsoever. But I find that hard to believe. And the reason why I find it hard to believe is because God makes demands. God insists that we love Him and God insists that we obey Him. God insists that we abandon idols. God insists that we embrace Him. God asks for our love and loyalty. And I have to believe that He has the expectation of getting it. The reality? We can't love Him. And we won't love each other. Unless our heart is radically different and radically changed. Do you love your wife? Do you love your husband? Do you love your children? Do you love your friends? Do you love your Christian family? Or do you withhold your love? Do you ration it based on your ability to accept them? If they live up to your standards, if they live up to your expectations. And you know what is one of the best measures 
It's to ask this simple question. Do you feel loved? It's a hard question. It's an embarrassing question. Especially if the answer is no. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4, Paul writes, Love suffers long and is kind, and love doesn't envy, and love doesn't parade itself, and love isn't puffed up. Love doesn't behave rudely. Love doesn't seek its own. Love isn't provoked. Love doesn't think any evil. Love refuses to manipulate in order to get its way. How about you? When you show love to someone else, is it weighed in the balance of reciprocity? Do you love with the hopes that you'll get something back? True love gives with no thought of getting anything in return. And authentic love becomes unlimited in its benefits of encouragement. Unselfish love brings encouragement and joy and peace. And of course, if you decide to love this way, the truth is you will become vulnerable. But if you're willing to take the risk, you'll experience the reward. But if you are unwilling to take the risk, you'll never be able to embrace the fruit that grows from the limbs of love's tree. C.S. Lewis wrote, To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything. And your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it in the safe or in a casket or in a coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket safe and dark and motionless and airless it will not change it will not be broken it will become unbreakable impenetrable irredeemable Jesus was going to the cross He was saying goodbye. Jesus was going to the world. But Jesus was going to the human heart. I love the story that tells of Jesus' resurrection and return to heaven. Jesus dies and rises from the dead and goes to heaven and And when his work on earth is done, he goes to heaven and and Gabriel asks, well, what provision, Jesus, have you made for the future? And Jesus said, I told Peter and James and John and the other faithful followers. The plan is that they will tell it to their generation and that generation will tell it to the next generation and the next generation until the end of time. And Gabriel says, but suppose the disciples fail to tell it to their generation. Suppose some generation should fail. What other plan do you have? What's plan B? And Jesus said, I have no other plan. 
the way Jesus reveals himself to this world is through your lips and through your life. Your lips and your life becomes the testimony of the reality of the glory of God. He's going to the cross. Because he's going to the world. He must go into your heart before he goes into heaven. And that's exactly what's happening here. That kind of love is very risky. But it's the only kind of love that matters. And so if you're living in the illusion that your Christianity is defined by what you believe, where you go, what you read and you somehow distance it from who you are and what you do then you're making a terrible, terrible, terrible mistake do you want to love each other? you won't be able to without the presence of Jesus in your life because the measure of love and the power of love can only come from the author of love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, for that person who, whose heart is filled with fear, for the person whose heart is filled with emptiness and darkness, for the person who lives in constant pain and constant greed, constant selfishness, constant darkness. Lord, we pray that the light of life and the light of love would descend into their hearts. Lord, we know that Jesus gives us this command in, in light of a, of a horrible and a terrible announcement that he's going to die. And Lord, we know as brothers and sisters that there are people who face hardship and pain and loss and deprivation. And if ever there was a time when we needed to love one another, if ever there was a time we needed to divide the sorrow, if ever there was a time that we needed a united witness to a watching world, Lord, we know it's now. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't squander the opportunity to love each other the way that you've loved us in humility in holiness sacrificially knowing the truth about who we are and ignoring all of that to provide what's best for us Lord what an amazing 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 thing you've done for us in Jesus and so, Lord, I pray for that person whose heart is empty or dark or hurt. Lord, I pray that you'd fill it up with your goodness and your love, with your joy and your peace, with forgiveness and hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.